0: We are in the middle of our journey as we make our way through this first book of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis. There are various ways in which uh, the book can be divided uh, for the purposes of our study. One way to think of Genesis is to divide it into two sections. The first section from chapter one to chapter 11 focuses on four key events and those events are creation, uh, chapter one and two, Uh, then the fall, chapter 3 and 5, the flood, chapter 6 to chapter 9, and then the nations, chapter 10 and chapter 11. Uh, Those are the four key events. Then there are four key individuals in the book of Genesis. Uh, You have Abraham, whose life we just recently concluded in our study from chapter 12 to chapter 24. Uh, Then you have Isaac, uh, his life in chapter 25 and 26. And then we have Jacob uh, from chapter 27 to chapter 36, and then Joseph from chapter 37 to chapter 50. And so we have four key events and four key individuals. But there's also another way of dividing the book, a technical way based on the Hebrew word Toledoth, which simply translated means generations. Uh, That word occurs a number of times in the book of Genesis Uh, We have, for example, the generations of Adam in chapter 5, verse 1. And then we have the generations of Noah in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. We have the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth in chapter 10, verse 1. In this chapter, uh, the word is used for Ishmael. We saw that last time when we met Genesis chapter 25, verse 12. And then we will see, as we will see tonight, it's used in connection with Isaac in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. And therefore, in continuation with the focus on the word generation, and with God's grace that is woven through these accounts, I've titled our lesson Generations of Grace, and we're going to look at the second part of this particular aspect of of grace, Generations of Grace. Grace. Uh, Last time we met we saw the generations of Abraham and Ishmael and today we see the generations of Isaac. We will see in our text, really if I had to summarize the account here, we will see in our text for tonight uh, two accounts or two events. Uh, The first is the birth account of of the twin boys uh, that takes place from verse 19 to verse 26 and the second is an event that takes place when these boys are now grown. And in the throes of their youth. And so, as we come to the text, we must ask ourselves why is this text in the scriptures? Uh, what must be God's purposes uh, or purpose in including a birth account? After all, there are a number of babies born every year or every day, but why this particular account? And then the text fast forwards to an event that takes place when the boys are younger. The older sibling is famished and he seeks food from the younger sibling, and he is willing to go to the extent of relinquishes his right as the older brother for a pot of stew. Why does the Holy Spirit, as the author of the Scriptures, move Moses to record this event for us? Well, I want to give you two reasons as we begin our time together, and those two reasons form the overall outline of our text for today. What we see in the text is really God's sovereignty on on display. In the first section, verse 19 to verse 26, we see God's sovereign choice at work. God's sovereign choice at work. And in the second section, we see man's will at work, or if you want to think of it another way, uh, it is man's will at work and and through that we see God's sovereign grace at work. In the first section, God's Sovereign choice at work, and in the second section, God's sovereign grace at work. You know, at Countryside, we make much of God's sovereignty because the Bible makes much of God's sovereignty. You cannot flip a page without noticing God's sovereignty at work. And what a comforting doctrine it is. But what does sovereignty mean? What does God's sovereignty mean? It means that the God of the Bible is one who is in complete control of the universe. And not partial, not only sometimes, not over just some things, but over all things, for all of the time, and for a totality of everything that exists in the universe. Now, That particular view of God is different from what is called as fatalism. Uh, fatalism is the impersonal concept that everything is predetermined and inevitable, but it denies the free will of man. Sovereignty, on the other hand, tells us that God, the personal being, works through human choices, choices that have real consequences, and he does this to accomplish his plan and his purposes. Almost all of the time, the Bible refers to God's sovereignty. One interesting thing we find is tucked very close to that text is also man's exercise of self-will or free will. Uh, let me give you an example. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. Now, who is doing the casting? It's the man, or Men are doing the casting. But it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. In the New Testament, as you go through Romans, Romans chapter 9 to 11 is another section where both God's sovereignty on the one hand comes uniquely together with man's free will, and they're not in conflict with each other. And so as we come to our text today, here's how I would summarize our text for tonight. It is that God, through his sovereign grace, fulfills his promises and accomplishes his plans despite human struggles and shortcomings. A God, through his sovereign grace, fulfills his promises and accomplishes his plan through despite human struggles and shortcomings. Let's read the text together, at least the first portion, as we look into what's in it for us today. What does God want us to learn from it? Verse 19 of Genesis 25. Now these are the records of the generations, the Toledoth, of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, and this is really the key verse: two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, Now, the first came forth red, or he looked red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, and so his name was called Jacob or Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Now, first of all, we see God's sovereign choice at work, God's sovereign choice at work, and within it, we see uh, and interact and come across a God who provides. The text begins by reminding us that this is a new section, a new Toledoth. We are no longer dealing with Ishmael, nor are we interacting with Abraham's other descendants. We are now focusing on Abraham's son, given to him by God uh, through a promise. We are dealing with the generations of Isaac. You know, Isaac is a very unique figure in the scriptures. There's much written about Isaac in anticipation of his arrival, but not much recorded once he arrives on the scene. Of course, there's the mention of the feast that takes place in chapter 21 when he's weaned. Uh, there is Genesis 22 that walks us through the testing of Abraham's faith. Then there is chapter 24, which gives a detail of how a bride was selected for Isaac. And now we come to chapter 25. Isaac here, notice in verse 19, is recorded, uh, introduced to us as Abraham's son. And then again, he's mentioned as one who was fathered by Abraham. Abraham is still the man in the spotlight. Notice then the section begins by and ends with mentioning Isaac's age. At the beginning, he is mentioned as someone who is 40 years old, verse 20. And then at the end of the section, it tells us that he is 60 years old. He gets married to Rebecca when he is 40, and he has a son or twins or two sons when he is 60. God then has provided Abraham with a son. But not only God has provided a son to Abraham, he has also provided a bride for that son. Her name is Rebecca. She's introduced to us in verse 20. And we're not only told who she is, but we are given some more context and some more information about her. Uh, she is, she, we are told that she is the daughter of Bethuel. And we meet Bethuel the first time in Genesis chapter 22, verse 22. Uh, Bethuel, if you remember, is the son of Nahor, uh, the brother of Abraham. Uh, Bethuel, we are told, is an Aramean of Padan Aram. And it's important to mention this to remind us of the extraordinary effort and care that God took to ensure that a wife for the son of the promise was not a Canaanite, but someone who was from the family and from the relatives of Abraham. In verse 20, it's also mentioned that Laban is her brother. You might think, why is a brother mentioned here? It's probably because, and most likely, because the text is actually preparing us for the role that he plays in the next seven chapters. So from chapter 26 to chapter 32, we see Laban play an important role And so he's introduced to us right here at the beginning of this story. And so no information or no detail is too trivial in the scriptures. Everything is important. We're told that God has provided a son. He has provided a bride also for that son. But there's still another piece of the puzzle that is missing. If Isaac is the one through whom the seed will come, what about children for Isaac? Has God blessed them with children? And that question is answered in verse 21. And here we are told for the first time that just like her mother-in-law, Sarah, Rebecca is also found to be barren. Her womb is closed. Now, she does not have children yet. How many years? Well, based on the two ages that are mentioned of Isaac, she's barren for at least 20 years. You see, Abraham was 75 years old when he was promised a son. And he had to wait 25 years before Isaac was born. Isaac, on his part, had to wait 20 years before he had a son. Another thing to notice here is that throughout the life of Abraham, we have never been told even once that Abraham prayed for Sarah and for her barrenness. He did pray for Abimelech. remember that story in chapter 20, and and the wombs in his household were closed, but once Abraham prays for him, the wombs are opened. But concerning Isaac, it's interesting to note that we are told up front that he prayed on behalf of his wife. He took his concerns not to a man, but to the Lord. What a great example that is. So already we are seeing an acknowledgement from Isaac's part about the sovereignty of God. He recognizes that it is God who opens wombs and it is God who closes wombs. It is God who takes and it is God who gives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is God who provides. It is God who has the ability to resurrect a womb. It is God who brings life from death. And so we see an acknowledgement from Isaac about God's sovereignty. But we also see man's responsibility. Isaac is surely aware of his past and the struggles of his own parents in conceiving him. He is aware that he himself is a result of God's intervention. But he does not rest on that knowledge. He pleads on behalf of his wife. He prays. You see, our prayers are the means through which God answers our supplications. Isaac prayed and God answered his prayer. Notice verse twenty. One. Rebecca his wife conceived and we see God's provision again on display that brings us to verse 22 and verse 23 as we see a God who elects you know while conception itself is a very painful process those of you who have conceived a baby and delivered a baby know that very well but the text tells us that the children struggled within her notice verse twenty the children struggle together within her ladies who have conceived and delivered a baby will tell you that babies kicking in the womb is a normal part of the process of the pregnancy but that's not really what is happening in our text the Hebrew word that is translated as struggled in verse 22 is more accurately translated as the children smashed and crushed themselves in the womb that's a very strong word. Now we have to remember that Rebecca is no delicate individual. She's no weakling. Remember when she's first introduced to us, she comes across as very industrious woman. She's a hard worker, a physically strong woman. But the war inside her womb was almost unbearable to the extent that she says, why did I even yearn to be a parent or pregnant? This is really unbearable and so she takes Looking at her husband's example, she too takes her concern to the Lord. And the text tells us she went to inquire of the Lord. We don't know exactly how she did that, but we are just told that she did it. Verse 22 at the end. And What does the Lord do? The Lord answers her prayer. And his answer is really a key to the entire text that is in front of us. Notice verse 23. He tells her that there is mayhem in her womb because there are twins that are growing in her womb. And these two individuals, the law tells her, are two nations that are there, and that they would divide and oppose each other. Not only that, one of them would be stronger than the other, and in opposition to the culture and tradition around them, we are told at the end of that verse that the older will be the one who will serve the younger. But what we must remember is what was happening in Rebecca's womb was not her or Isaac's making, that it was a part of the divine plan of God, who was working out everything for his purpose and for his glory. One author is quoted as saying, the order of nature is not necessarily the order of grace. The order of nature is not necessarily the order of grace. You know, the fact is emphasized in Genesis again and again. You remember the story of Cain and Abel. You see, Cain is the older one, and Abel, the the younger one. But it is Cain's offering that is rejected, while Abel's is accepted. We think of Isaac himself; he is the younger one compared to Ishmael, but Ishmael is rejected, but Isaac himself is is chosen. Uh, Judah, the third-born son of Jacob, is the one who's chosen. Through whom the line of the Messiah would come, and his two older brothers are rejected. Uh, Joseph was chosen over his older siblings. Not only that, we have David, the youngest member in the family, chosen over his older brother. And so you see that choice of God running through the Scriptures. Now you might think this is an Old Testament thing, but it's also a New Testament thing. Uh, First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-seven to twenty-nine, Paul writes, "But God." has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Kent Hughes in his commentary writes this, the order of nature does not determine the order of grace. A tradition does not determine grace, he says. Convention does not determine or dictate grace. Neither does giftedness or natural endowments. Grace does not bow to social privilege or status. The Apostle Paul takes this and he explains it, what what is happening here uh, in Romans chapter nine. Why don't we turn there quickly, Romans chapter nine. Notice what Paul writes about this particular incident, Romans chapter 9, verse 10 to verse 13. And not only this, he says, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, And had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. There he quotes from Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. In other words, Jacob becomes an heir of the promises, not because of his excellent moral character... Neither was he chosen for his good works. How do we know that? We know that because the choice was made even before the twins were born. Not only that, God's choice of Jacob went beyond the individual. You see, God through Jacob, this one individual, actually chose the nation of Israel. That's the context of the verses in Malachi chapter 1. And if that's the case of God's choice, then how do we understand God's hatred towards Esau? You see, we need to see the hatred in the context of his choice of Jacob and the Israelites. Uh, Perhaps a better way to understand election or God's choice of Jacob uh, and God's hatred of Esau is by replacing it with the word or using the word rejected. God rejected Esau and his descendants. It's only later on as we see the wicked and evil choices that Esau and his descendants made that we begin to see the wisdom and purpose in the election of God. But the point of this and the other passages that teach God's choice uh, in election is not focused on those who rejected God, but those who are chosen. A woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. Spurgeon was quick to reply. He said, that is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. If you're a believer, if you're a child of God, that is your difficulty and mine as well. As you think of your own circumstance, as you look at your life and as you look at mine, we have to admit that we cannot understand how God could love us. Not many of us were wise according to the flesh, says Paul. Not many mighty, not many noble. Let's say God were to choose us on the basis of our character or our wealth or our intelligence, then we would have something to boast before him. The fact of the matter is there is nothing for us to boast before this God. Our boast is only in the Lord. He alone is the one who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness on earth. He is God and he does not need to offer any explanation. He does not need to offer any apologies for his choice. His sovereignty does not bow to human expectations. If it did, then he would not be God. His grace and his merciful election of us is a fact that is repeatedly taught in the scriptures whether we understand it or not. You and I can only have one response. It's the same response that Paul has at the end of that section of Romans 9 to Romans 11. At the end in Romans 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, this is the God who elects. That brings us to the third and final section. Within this section it is the God who delivers. Notice verse 24 to verse 26. The God who delivers. Just like the Lord confirmed when Rebecca was ready to deliver, uh, she was found with twins in her womb. Uh, And then we are told about uh, the process and how that took place in verse 24 to verse 26. We're told that the first one that comes from the womb is the older one. And so we are given an account of the older one first. We are told he was red in color. The first, come, first came forth, red. Verse 25. Now that's the Hebrew word admoni, admoni. You can hear the word edom in there. He was red. That's what red is. Not only was he red. in Verse 25. In the middle, we are told he was very hairy, hairy. Now, that's the Hebrew word seer, seer, or eser. You can hear the word Esau in there, and that's why he was named Esau. Esau then, as we look at this text, is named on the basis of his appearance. Jacob, on the other hand, is named on the basis of his actions. Notice verse 26. He came out holding Esau's heel. They're just newborns. They're in the womb. They were fighting in the womb. But the oracle from the Lord that he shared in verse 23 is already coming true. Jacob, the younger... Is holding on to the heel of Esau. Uh, the word "heel" also actually means to protect. You know, as you think of a war and the infantry regiment in a war, uh, these are those who would follow at the heels in order to protect. So it had a positive connotation. Nobody wants to name their children that has a negative connotation. No, so this did have a positive connotation to it. And the word for heel is Achab or Achab. You can hear the word. Jacob or, or Jacob in there. And it's only as his character develops in the story that a negative connotation is placed on him. He's the one who is a heel grabber. He holds Esau back in a sense by holding on to his heels. And that then is Jacob for us, verse 26. As we look at this account then of these first few verses, the account begins with a prayer And then ends with that prayer being answered. And through that prayer, in the process of that prayer being answered, we see a God who provides, a God who elects, and a God who delivers. Isaac, we are told, is 60 by now. 20 years have passed from when he first got married to Rebecca. That means there has been a long process. That brings us to the next section, which is man's free will, at work. You know, typically God's sovereignty in the scriptures is placed right next to man's free will. And we find a good example of that in our text today. Between verse 26 and verse 27, some years have passed because the newborns are not newborns anymore, they are young men. And what we see in this particular section is an outworking of what God had prophesied in verse 23. And as we step back a little bit, we also see a God continuing to move forward in his plan despite human shortcomings. So man's free will at work. Notice verse 27 and verse 28. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a, he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh, First of all, we see when man's free will is at work, he favors the one who brings benefits. He favors the one who brings benefits. We are introduced to the boys as they grew up. Esau, we are told, became a skillful hunter. He's an outdoors kind of a man. He's a man of the field. Uh, The word hunter is used in the past in Genesis that has a negative connotation to it. It's used for Nimrod, remember the one who was the king of Uh, Babel. It's used for Ishmael, who is one who is described as an archer. And so this whole hunter concept, or one who is outside, comes with a negative connotation to it. He was one who lived in the wilderness. And so Esau, as you think of Esau, he's in line of Nimrod and and Ishmael. The smell of the field, someone has said, was always on him. Someone has also said, you may not hear him come into the tent... But he could definitely smell him. He was an outdoors kind of man. But Jacob, on the other hand, is described as a man of peace or a peaceful man. The word peaceful is also translated later on as one who is complete or blameless. It's in the story of Job where that sense is brought out for the first time. Job is described as one and is described by the Lord as one who is blameless and upright fearing God and one who turns away from evil. Jacob is a peaceful, a blameless man. And in comparison to Esau, who was a man of the field, Jacob is described as a man of the tents. He was living in the tents. He's an indoors guy. They both came from the same womb, but they are diametrically opposed to each other in their temperament and their likes and dislikes and their inclinations. And those inclinations will play a part in how their parents respond to them, Isaac in particular. Notice verse 28. We are told Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. The word for game is the same word that is translated earlier on as a hunter. Isaac loved Esau because he loved to eat what Esau hunted in the fields. And already at the beginning of this verse, we are beginning to see uh, partiality from the parent's side beginning to to have a major say in the story. Rebecca we are told on the other hand is one who loved Jacob. Now there's no reason mentioned here. It may be that she remembers what the Lord had prophesied to her in verse 23 and um, she has a special affinity to Jacob because she realizes that he's going to be over the older. We don't know that for sure, but that could very well be a reason. Now there's no doubt that as parents they they love both of their sons. You see they had prayed earnestly and persistently for children and now when they have children we are told they are inclined to one of them. Esau being inclined, uh, or Isaac inclined towards Esau and Rebecca towards Jacob. They preferred one over the Now this kind of favoritism further fuels the fire of sibling rivalry. As we see the rest of the text and really the rest of the book of Genesis, even up until the story of David, we find this rivalry, this, uh, this battle between these two groups. What a tragic setup this for what is to follow. And we see the seed sown for that in the account to follow. This is a sad, sad exchange. You see favor is exchanged for a benefit. You see that in the life of Isaac. He loves Esau because he had a taste for game. That's how human love works. I love you because this is the benefit you bring to me. Here is a choice then that is made on the basis of tastes or senses because of what Esau could give to Isaac. Isaac loved Esau. You see, this is a weakness in Isaac's character, something that his family will exploit in chapter 27, which we will look at in a couple of weeks. But what can we learn? You see, when you're driven by your senses, you exchange favor for a benefit. Isaac's love for Esau, which was based on a benefit, that is a taste for game, will now be the very basis on which Esau really operates. Notice verse 29 to verse 32. Verse 32. As we see on Esau's part, he is driven by physical. He is driven by the physical rather than the spiritual. Notice verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I am famished. And Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I am about to die, so what use then is the birthright to me? You see, a worldly person, a man in his natural state is driven by the physical rather than the spiritual. A day that looked like any other day in the lives of these two men takes on a significant turn uh, for these two brothers, which will eventually impact two people groups and two nations for another thousand years. Jacob who is a peaceful man living in the tents, is also described as one who is a chef. And on this particular day, he has cooked stew. Now we are told that Esau came in from the field and he was famished, he was exhausted, and he was tired, he was so tired, so he says to Jacob, please let me swallow, or let me just gulp down that red stuff you have there. I am exhausted. And Moses adds a comment there at the and therefore his name was Edom, not only because of the color with which he was born, but also because of the significance of this story, the color of the stew that was there. Esau then is one who is exhausted, he's famished, he's physically tired. Now one quick application before we move forward, and it is this, be very careful of the times when you're physically tired. You see the greatest temptation The most vulnerable position to be in before you sin, before you fall for that temptation is to succumb to the physical tiredness. I used to have a professor who used to say the most spiritual thing sometimes you can do is go to sleep. Just take some rest. You see, when you're tired physically, it's far better to postpone that important discussion. It's far better to go take some rest rather than move forward with that decision. You see, it's the tired body whose guard is down. When the body is tired, uh, that is, that which is physical then suddenly becomes more important than that which is spiritual, which, we, which is what we see at play here. Notice Jacob's response in verse 31. First, sell me your birthright. The word earlier that was translated peaceful for Jacob has the idea of something that is sound or solid. Uh, Derek Kidner in his commentary describes it this way. This is the level-headed quality that made Jacob at his best toughly dependable and at his worst a formidably cool opponent. Jacob was a cool and a calculated customer. You can can envision, envision him just sitting there preparing his stew, he sees Esau come in and he has thought about what he's going to say to him for a long time and he sees this opportunity and he grabs it with both his hands. As against Esau's vulnerable position you can almost visualize Jacob as more stable and steady and controlled. It's this quality that comes to the fore as he demands from Esau to sell his birthright. Now we don't have that concept in our culture so what is a birthright? It's essentially the right of the firstborn to inherit a double portion of the father's inheritance. So Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. That meant that Esau uh, would would get two-thirds of the inheritance, two-thirds of the property. But it was not just material in its aspect, it also had a spiritual angle to it. You see, the firstborn would also eventually become the leader of the family. He's the head of the tribe, the patriarch in that sense. But not only would he be the leader of the family, he would also be the spiritual leader of the family. So there was a lot at stake when it comes to a birthright. And Esau stands to lose all of that for a mere pot of stew. By the way, this is not even a beef stew. You know, at, at least that would have been understandable to some extent. This is a vegan stew. Notice at the end, it's made up of lentils. It's a stew of lentils. But Jacob's response is really in the imperative. It's almost as he is, as if he's commanding. Here's what he says: "Sell me your birthright right now." As you think of Esau, you almost feel for Esau. You know he he uses kind words there. He says, "I'm about to die. What?" Use then as a birthright to me. You see, Esau Esau was simply hungry. He feels that he's going to die, but he's merely exhausted. And he places his birthright on the altar of sacrifice. What we are seeing here, we see a man who is driven by the physical rather than the spiritual. Esau is willing to exchange that which is true and righteous for that which is cheap and momentary. Someone has said, in his desperation, he the hunter, Esau, has now become the hunted. He the hunter has now become the hunted. That brings us to the last section. You see, a man in his free will, a natural man, is focused on the immediate rather than the eternal. A natural man in his sinful state is focused on the immediate. He or she needs immediate satisfaction rather than a focus on the eternal. Jacob is not satisfied with just a word. He wants a firmer assurance from Esau. So notice what he says, verse 33. And Jacob said, first swear to me. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentils too, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau swears to Jacob, sells his birthright. In other words, what I would have inherited being the firstborn, I swear it to give it to you over a pot of stew. And so as a response to that oath in verse 34, we are told Jacob gives Esau some bread and lentils too, and then a tragic sequence follows. Notice the sequence. He ate, he drank, he rose, and he went on his way. Uh, this is, by the way, the same sequence that is mentioned a number of times in other sections. Let me, let me mention just one section. This is also a sequence that is mentioned in Exodus 32. Remember that story when the Israelites are at the mount, foot of the Mount Sinai? Uh, Moses is on the mountaintop. He is there a number of days as he's receiving the Ten Commandments and a number of other instructions from the Lord. But at the foot of the mountain, People are frustrated with the delay. And then what do they do? They go to Aaron and they tell him to make a God for them. A God that they can see. And this is what it says in verse 6 of chapter 32 of Exodus. It says the people sat down to eat, to drink, and then they rose to play. In other words, what has just happened at the foot of the mountain is very sad. It's evil and it's disastrous. And it's the same thing that happens Here, verse 34. He ate, he drank, and he rose, he went on his way. Now you would have expected the text to say something like this. You would have expected it to say, Jacob acted in a cunning way. He took advantage of his brother's weak moment. And Esau on his part despised his birthright. But that's not what the text says. Notice at the end of verse 34. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. It's a comment on what Esau did. You see, Esau prioritized the immediate satisfaction over the eternal. And in doing so, he sealed his own fate. You see, when Esau stands on the final day before God, he alone would be held responsible for his guilt and sin. In that sense, the text is really very unique. The character of both Esau and And Jacob is on display and both are presented in the light of their faults, not of their strengths. This is a bad deal from the beginning. Why? You see, Jacob is buying something that is already his. That's what the oracle in verse 23 was about. So Jacob buys that which is already his because God promised it to him. Esau, on the other hand, sold what did not belong to him. And so one buys what already is his, and the other sells what is not his. A bad deal from the beginning. And so how does, how do we interpret this text? Well, here is a helpful suggestion. Every time you're looking at an Old Testament text, always be careful to see what the New Testament text has to say about this Old Testament text. And so that's what we will do. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and verse 7 to 17. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 to verse 17. As we draw some applications for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. The author tells us, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. That's chapter 27. For he found no place for repentance that he sought for it with tears. Now, one lesson that's already been highlighted could be this, that we want to be people who prioritize the eternal over the immediate. The eternal over the immediate. His actions are called immoral and godless here. In other words, here is one who had no concern for spiritual values. He put his immediate needs ahead of all other consideration. He put his feelings ahead of his weak convictions. He was driven by the physical needs rather than spiritual. In other words, he prioritized that which was physical over the spiritual. There's other lessons that we can draw from this. And if you're a child of God, there are different applications that you can draw. But notice another thing here. You know, with all his faults, really, if we look at just this text we can come away feeling a little sad for Esau. He seems to be the gentle one. Remember, he says, please, can I have this too?" He pleads with Jacob politely. Later on in the book of Genesis, Jacob seems to be the one who's carrying the sense of guilt. Remember when he's coming back to meet Esau? He's afraid to meet him. And when they meet him, meet each other after a long time, it's actually Esau who runs to meet him. He embraces him. He falls on his neck and he kisses him. That's Esau. And they weep as brothers. Esau actually comes away from Genesis chapter 25 and then the rest of Genesis as a more likable person. And so when you remember that it was Jacob who was loved, but Esau who was rejected, in our natural state we can come away offended by God's exercise of his sovereignty. How could you do this, Lord? Here is a very likable person, yet the text tells us that he was rejected. If you and I are offended by God's choice of Jacob, or if you and I are offended by the doctrine of God's sovereign election, then what we can say from this text is that we don't fully understand the depth of our own sin. Let me repeat that. If you and I are offended by God's sovereign election, we do not understand the depravity of our own hearts. You and I do not fully grasp the profundity of our sinfulness. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes you and me in our sinful state. You don't have to turn there. This is how he describes us in Genesis chapter 3. First, he says, we are profoundly sinful in our mind. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. One. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. We are profoundly sinful when it comes to our mind. Not only that, we are profoundly sinful when it comes to our speech. Of these sinful people, he says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. We are profoundly sinful in our minds. We are profoundly sinful in our speech. And we are profoundly sinful in our actions. This is how Paul describes this. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. You see, that is your situation. And that is my situation without God. In fact, Paul goes further and he characterizes us, rightfully so, as spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead. Without Christ and without God, we're spiritually dead. If you are offended by God's exercise of his sovereign choice, then we do not understand the depth of our own sin. But secondly, we do not fully understand the God of grace. If you are offended at God's actions, then you do not understand God as he is presented to us in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, Daniel records for us, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, no one can question God, and he's not obligated to respond to your questions. He's not obligated to anyone, and he's not obligated to do anything for you and for me. We don't tell him what to do, But he tells us what we must do. He's he's under no obligation to save us. He's not someone who is weak and helpless. He's not someone who is tame. He rules and he reigns. And he alone is the supreme and sovereign authority over everything. You know, but his supremeness and his sovereignty is not only seen in his reign... It is also seen in him initiating a relationship with us. He's also equally a gracious and a loving God. He's a righteous and a just God. And in the exercise of his sovereign grace, he sent his son, someone about whom we were singing just a few minutes back, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text tells us in the New Testament that he drank the cup of God's wrath because he knew that that was the only way for you and I to be redeemed from sin. God in Christ suffered and paid the price for your sin and mine. And he is free to dispense his grace as he chooses. Our response, just like we were singing, thank you, Jesus. But there's another thing that we don't fully understand If we are offended by God's exercise of his sovereign choice, we don't fully understand the grace of God. If we are offended by God's actions, we do do not fully grasp what it means to be the recipients of his grace. Here's how one of the commentators writes about this application and with that we'll close. Grace that is earned is not grace at all. Grace goes to the undeserving. Grace comes at God's discretion, not our directives. And grace is there for you. If you're not in Christ, if you will come to Christ, and if you do come, you will discover that it is all of God from beginning to end. As I think about my life, and as I hear about testimonies from many of you who have come to know the Lord, uh, that is, the testimony of your heart and mine, that it was God from beginning to end. Perhaps you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me remind you of the grace that he extends to you in Christ Jesus. Trust him. If you are already a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we do understand the depth, not as much as we should understand, but we do understand the depth of our sin. We do understand the God of this grace, and we do understand the grace of this God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace extended to us in and through Christ Jesus. While we can say we do understand, even as your children, and the fact of the matter is we don't fully grasp even then. We don't understand why should guilty evildoers like us be washed In the atoning blood of your son. We don't understand how can we be clothed in your righteousness. We don't understand why we should be allowed to radiate. The bright glory that only belongs to you. As we look at our own life. We know that we do not deserve your grace. In fact if we were to spend our life in hell we would look at ourselves and we would say that's what we truly deserved. But God, but we're thankful for the grace that you have extended to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I do pray for each one of us who is a part of your family here tonight that we would rejoice in the fact that this is the kind of God who has loved us and gave himself up for us. For those who do not know you, I pray that something that was said in the text or mentioned in the course of this lesson would impact them and that they would cry out to you in repentance and faith your word tells us that those who draw near to you that you will draw near to them may that be true of each one of us here tonight we ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name amen